And hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative on a Tuesday night. What a good show we have for you tonight. We're going to look at how Beijing really influenced the Donald Trump campaign all the way back to 2016 and how they're still in the game tonight. We have a special guest coming up. That'll be coming up shortly, plus lots of other interesting news that's been happening. Don't forget to join us at narrative.org forward slash TV, where you can interact with us, ask uh, questions to our guest or me, and also give us your comments on the story tonight, which we're titling The China Syndrome. All of that is coming up in just a bit. But first, let's do the news from today. This is the starting block. And leading the news tonight, President Biden had some foreign policy jiu-jitsu on display today, moments after letting the world know that his government will not be attending the Beijing Olympics because the Chinese are abusing human rights. Without skipping a beat, Biden let Vladimir Putin know in no uncertain terms that invading Ukraine would be foolhardy and expensive, especially to that Nord Stream pipeline he really once built. These are stunning times indeed. The former chief of staff of the President of the United States, Mr. Mark Meadows, is apparently tomorrow going to be facing criminal contempt charges for refusing to testify and comply with a subpoena from the January 6th Congressional Committee. This is a major about face for Meadows, but as our friend Clearing Fog reminds us, it sounds like the January 6th Committee already knows that Mark Meadows was using a private cell phone on January 6th and that they likely have already seen his text messages. Meadows was on Newsmax earlier on today. Well, that, obviously that's not the case. Uh, in fact, I've told them that, to my knowledge, no one uh, in the West Wing had any advanced knowledge of, of what was going to happen on January 6th in terms of a breach of security. Uh, additionally, uh, a, a number of things that, that took place uh, uh, actually would, would not go towards uh, supporting that narrative. Well, then you shouldn't have any problem testifying, Mr. Meadows. Instead, he'll be referred to prosecution by his early as tomorrow. Meadows' attorney confirmed that the release of Meadows' private phone records influenced his decision to pull back from their earlier arrangement. Maybe he'll also bump into Steve Bannon, who finally got a trial date today. It'll be heard that his trial will begin at least in July. Now, speaking of Meadows, Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw spilled some tea while at a town hall this weekend. The former Navy SEAL referred to the Freedom Caucus as grifters while advocating for representatives like Adam Kinzinger. Everybody in the Freedom Caucus, all of them, what you hear so often is not true. It's not true. We have grifters in our midst. Not here, not like in this room, that's not what I mean. I mean in the conservative movement. Lie after lie after lie because they know something psychologically about the conservative heart. We're worried about what people are going to do to to us, what they're going to infringe upon us. This is a show I've been wanting to do for a very long time. Back in 2017, it became apparent to many of us covering Trump Russia that the attack on American democracy was not just the work of Russia, but rather a coalition of governments and ruling parties in various countries like Saudi Arabia, Israel, Egypt, the UAE, and of course, Russia. They were, in fact, what we refer to as the enemies of democracy. Not long after that, we began to see the outlines of another nation, a superpower, pulling the strings of many of those mid-level countries we just discussed. 
only one country in the world has enough money and willpower to take on the United States. And that country, of course, is China. Now, there were always signs that China had been a part of Trump world. But tonight, we're going to show you the brass tacks of the funding. We're going to show you how the money was laundered directly into the Trump campaign. But before we get there, let's look at what was publicly known in 2016 and where the signs were that Trump was made in China. Take Trump's key funder at the time, the late casino owner Sheldon Adelson, who also happens to be a big supporter of Bibi Netanyahu in Israel, by the way. Adelson, of course, is no longer with us, and his sans empire has decamped Vegas, completely choosing to base itself 100% of the time in the Chinese island of Macau. Macau is not only the world's biggest gambling center, but also has the largest exposure to money laundering compared to any other thriving gaming market in the world. That's according to a company called FTI Consulting. The special administration region is not simply a rich man's playground, but also provides a means for these high rollers to take any graft payments out of the People's Republic of China. FTI Consulting also says that they've been involved in several investigations to identify the methods used by corrupt officials to launder money through the casino system. In each situation, the chips were churned and redeemed as cash disguised as legitimate winnings, and then they were transferred to an offshore bank account using a gray market network with small transfer amounts made under Macau's monitoring threshold. Hmm, that's how they did it. So Trump's chief funder, Sheldon Adelson, was possibly maybe we can say likely, a beneficiary of such influence trades. See, he was not just part of the Communist Party corruption, but he's part of the organized crime element of the Communist Party corruption. And all of that, of course, under the influence directly of Beijing. In 2015, Adelson was sued by the former CEO of Adelson's highly profitable casinos in the Chinese enclave of Macau. The guy's name was Stephen Jacobs, and he claims to have been sacked for trying to break links to organized crime groups, the triads, and attempting to halt alleged influence peddling with Chinese officials, which is what he thought Adelson was doing. Now, Adelson accused Jacobs of squealing like a peg to the government and of blackmail in taking his accusations to the United States officials. Now, they also included that the Las Vegas Sands paid what amounted to be bribes intended to influence the Macau authorities and the government in Beijing, and that the casino did business with a notorious triad leader. Adelson was described by Forbes magazine as the largest foreign investor in China at the time. In 2016, Las Vegas Sands agreed to pay $9 million to end the Securities and Exchange Commission's investigation, five-year probe into whether it violated a federal anti-bribery law by paying a consultant to help it do business in China and Macau. So yeah, guilty of sorts. China is also deeply intertwined in the relationship of Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Few people realize the role that Wendy Deng played in keeping the couple together when they tried to break up. The whole thing prompted the U.S. intelligence services to leak a warning. They told Jared and Ivanka that Deng is a Chinese spy or suspected of being of one and cautioned Kushner and Trump about their continued friendship with Deng. Jared and Ivanka, of course, have extensive financial ties to China, and the country's president seems to be quite taken by their daughter. Deng is, of course, Rupert Murdoch's ex-wife. Murdoch still runs Fox News, the propaganda network that is credited with keeping Trump in power. So Trump's key financial funder was knee-deep in Chinese Communist Party corruption. His daughter and son-in-law were under the influence of a Chinese Communist Party spy who was formerly married to the owner of Trump's chief propaganda network, Rupert Murdoch. And that's to say nothing of Steve Bannon's ties to the so-called Chinese dissident, but actual Chinese agent, Guo, and Eric Prince, whose company was until narrative exposed it, owned by China's Citic Group. 
Welcome to the show, everybody. That's the introduction. I want to welcome as well, uh, let's just call him Mr. X, because that's how seriously we have to take his identity tonight. You know, anyone speaking out on this topic, if you're speaking out in a negative way, and you're related maybe to, you know, in any way to anything in the story, you certainly are raising lots of questions and concerns about your safety, which is why Mr. X tonight is being hidden both in voice and in identity, but he's joining us live. How are you doing tonight, Mr. X? Good to meet you, Mr. Zaf. It's good to meet you too. And that is a disguised voice, by the way, if everyone's wondering why it sounds so um, unusual. But, you know, you just heard there my setup, which included a real obvious look at some of the stuff we already knew about Donald Trump and his Chinese influences around him. Did you have any thoughts about what I said there? Did anything strike you as surprising? Not a surprise at all. In fact, there are two things that people probably should take into consideration. The first is Macau. Macau is very, very important to communist intelligence operation, especially United Front, because Macau is held out as the example, a quote-unquote successful example, for one country, two system, which is the pretext for to, co- to coerce Taiwan to accept Xi Jinping's call for annexation. So it's a place where Chinese intelligence has a very, very extensive network. So that's one thing. The second thing is Eric Prince. So if everybody had been following Eric Prince, you would know that Eric Prince, his company formed a training center, or it was trying to form a training center in a place referred to as Xinjiang, which is really the Eastern Turkestan. Now, mm-hmm. Eric Prince has resigned eight months ago from the company. His company was bought by you know, the, some other party. But here's what's interesting. The company he formed is still a public listing in Hong Kong. That's number one. Number two, anybody who understands China politics just a little bit will know to get permission to open a training center in eastern Turkestan, that's a very big deal. Mm. It's probably more difficult than a new immigrant going to White House and advise President Biden. That's how, how significant it is. Well, we're going to do both of those tonight. Let's, you know, in terms of Eric Prince, I can tell you that my investigation has revealed that he is so close to Xi and so close to the Cidic group, which is in the turn so close to Xi, that there is, um, you know, there's very little separating what Eric Prince does in the world from the Beijing government. And certainly that will include building camps in eastern China there. But in terms of what we're discussing tonight, the... You know, Eric Prince was certainly a big part of Donald Trump's world. So was Steve Bannon. Obviously, Ivanka and Jared were. The Adelsons, in particular, as I highlighted on the way in here, is something I think we often skip over. We forget how much money Adelson made, almost $40 billion, I think he was worth at the time of his death, in Macau. He was bankrupt when he got to Macau. You know, he had no money. Uh, he took a gamble that he was going to turn that uh, little piece of land that he saw there into a thriving casino business. It turned out to be a good deal for him, but it also entailed getting intertwined with the organized criminal elements, with intelligence elements, and the government elements, the Communist Party elements that were there in Macau from China and from Beijing. And that, of course, was very complicated for him. He went and took that money in addition to having to bribe people and you know do all sorts of things that he maybe he did it because he willingly, but maybe he did because he just needed to survive, who knows. And he took that money and he poured it into Bibi Netanyahu's campaign in Israel. And he poured some other money into Donald Trump's campaign in America. And suddenly 
you know, these two strongman leaders emerged that really changed the dynamic of the world. We suddenly saw everything in the world shift because of Bibi Netanyahu and Donald Trump. And they were both being funded by this man, this casino magnet, who was getting a lot of his money from Beijing, from the Macau casinos. And I think it's one of those things that is often missed. We often think of him as a Zionist and a person who cared about Jerusalem and all, all those other things. That's indeed true. But the money, which is really what drove both uh, Trump, Bibi, and in fact, the GOP, because they were also heavily uh, paid for by Adelson, all that money came from China, essentially. Yeah. So we're going to do a little bit more about some things you haven't heard about, because we certainly have heard about all these stories I've just mentioned before. But before we go on, I want you to underline two different aspects that I think are really important for people to understand. The first is... These two people, Xi and Putin, are in an alliance together. They have been in alliance together for a very long time. That alliance might have been rocky at different times in Soviet Chinese history or in Russian Chinese history, but that doesn't make it any difference. I mean, they've been uh, basically aligned for most of the last, what would you say, almost 100 years. Yeah, so here's a brief history. So mm. first Chinese Communist Party was set up as a branch of communist term, communist international. So the entire communist history was set up by starting with the nurturing of the Soviet Union. That's, that's the first part. Then communist China was formed with direct Soviet help. Then in 1949, communists overran China, took over China. And after that, for a period of time, China and the Soviet were really allies. That's when communist China went into the Korean War. There was no choice. Actually, there was no choice because Stalin would have the communist China to go into Korean War. Because when communist China was fighting to take over China, North Korea supported China. So did Soviet Union. It's time for you to pay back. Now, we know in 1953, Stalin died. And because of that, communist China also pulled off out of the Korean War. And after that, what happened? So after Stalin, Stalin is Khrushchev. Mm-hmm. It's then at that time the leader was Mao. China Chinese leader was Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong at that time thought, "I'm the same generation as Joseph Stalin. It's now my turn to mm-hmm. lead the global communism." So Khrushchev, you are just a young puppy. You need to step aside now. The Russians didn't take it a while at all. So that escalated eventually into a major, major fight within the communist camp. So China eventually called the Soviet Union its arch enemy. Mm -hmm. That gave Nixon and Kissinger an opportunity to open up China because my enemy's enemy is my friend. Mm -hmm. Fast forwarding to 1984, Gorbachev came into power and eventually in 1989, Gorbachev made a visit to China exactly the same time when students were protesting. And after that, Soviet Union collapsed. So right. this old feel between the two communist states, which one should lead the communist movement worldwide, came to an end. Because one ceased to exist as a communist country. Right. So now, after that, in 1996, China's relationship with the Soviet Union quickly warmed back from the arch enemies to each other to strategic partners. And mm. after 1996, Putin came into power. After Putin came into power, China really saw, although 
Putin came into power as an anti-communist former KGB. However, the geopolitical interests of these two countries has a major overlap in which they want to both want to challenge the global order. That's number one. And number two, China's entire intelligence operation was formed as a student of Soviet system, including the NKVD and the KGB. Right. So these people who are running the intelligence in, in the Chinese Communist Party, they actually they, they cut their teeth with the Soviets. Now, here's one thing. There's a saying, Prussia is a military with a state. The way you look at the Communist China, you should view it. Communist China is an intelligence operation with a party. And the Communist China is a, is a party with a state. Right. So the intelligence operation is the core of the Communist operation. So imagine those people who cut teeth with Russians, now all of a sudden, they don't have to worry about who actually is the dominant, who should dominate the communist movement. They share the same geopolitical interest. Quickly, in 21st century, that strategic partnership elevated multiple times, especially after 2012, to become something truly, truly important. So let me give you one Data, data point. Mm-hmm. China has overtaken the United States as the number one provider of international aid. Guess who is the number one by far, the number one receiver of aid from communist China? It's called Russian Federation. Hmm. That is so interesting you say that. In fact, you know, when I talk to people who have been to Russia or certainly Moscow, even under the whole of Russia, but who've been to Moscow recently, but uh, hadn't been there for a long period of time, you know, since China and Russia have gotten such so much closer together, Moscow has been revitalized. The entire city has been rebuilt into a very modern city in a way that you know Putin could not have managed on his own. So it seems to me like a lot of that money is, in fact, landing in Russia from China, and that Russia is using it in many ways to expand its profile around the world, but also to do these dirty tricks, the campaign in 2016 to elect Donald Trump, which obviously involved some of Russian influence, particular Russian influence, that might have been a favor they had done for Xi and the Chinese. The same thing with the Saudis, even the Israelis and the UAE might have all been actually working at the behest of China. Yeah. So let me give two data points for everybody to think Mm. about. 2008 is when Putin finished restructuring of FSB, Russia's premier intelligence service. And after that, SFSB has become the powerhouse for the far-right movement mm-hmm. in Europe and around yeah. the world. Around the world, in fact. In two same year, Putin finished FSB restructuring. Communist China started to promote the so-called conservatism, far-right ideology within China and around the world. Interesting. Then, mm. After 2012, uh, Xi Jinping came into power. Russian and the Chinese relationship quickly escalated. At the same time, if you look into what's being done in the 2016 to 2020, there's a massive amount of 
this information being conducted in the WeChat. We know WeChat is strictly controlled by Communist China. Mm-hmm. If you say something, communists don't disapprove. Within hours, you'll be detained. Okay. So if you go to WeChat, it's flooded with all kinds of disinformation. This is very interesting. For anybody who reads Chinese, you will quickly see what's being spread is a direct translation of the Russian narratives. The Democrats are communists. The United States needs ultra-conservatism. Russian is a Christian nation. Russia is a white nation. The white Christian nation and the United States need to return to its root of 1776 as a conservative white Christian nation. So it's a direct one-to-one parallel translation. That's so interesting you mentioned that. And just to clarify for everyone, we're talking about WeChat, which is basically like the WhatsApp of China. Uh, It is very, very controlled. There are government censors that watch every word you put out on WeChat. So the fact that these narratives are finding their way through WeChat, and clearly they originate from the Kremlin, they are you know, entering our discourse here in the United States is really interesting because even though maybe no one in this audience is on WeChat, there are a large number of Chinese Americans that are on WeChat and they are recipients of some of this disinformation. And this is sort of where we get into the interesting role of Chinese Americans in 2016 because really it's not that Asian Americans have not played a role in American politics up until 2016, but things really did change in 2016. I mean, they sort of a coordinated and specific attempt to get support out for Donald Trump. And we're going to talk a lot about that this evening. We're going to look at some of the people who were involved in that. But before we do, I think we need to discuss the idea of the United Front, which is a Chinese foreign policy, really. It's about how they will approach the world. You know, it basically tells people that, well, why don't you describe for us what the United Front is? Yeah, the United Front is, is talked by, it's called, it's referred to by President Xi Jinping as the magic weapon of CCP. Mm-hmm. To summarize this function in one term, it's political influence operation. By what? By making friends with you and turn you against some other parties I want to turn against. So if you know the Soviet style intelligence operation, mm-hmm. which Chinese intelligence certainly fall into that, 85% of the resource, according to Bezmenov, of any communist country's intelligence operation is in political influence, political influence operation. They're not in a traditional intelligence gathering and so on. So, Correct. and the other thing is, for everybody to understand, United Front is the core of the CCP operations. So United Front has its tentacles into military, into foreign policy into everything. And according to the CCP bylaw, it's 95 million CCP members need to carry out the policies decided by the United Front. The United Front, the leader of the United Front, is basically one of the, you know, seven top CCP officials. But basically, in the end, at the end of the day, President Xi Jinping is directly leading the United Front. 
So United Front is more than just a policy. It's an actual organization is what you're saying. It actually is. It wraps around a lot of different other organizations that might be at odds with each other. And I think this is kind of the complicated thing for our minds here to really digest is that there are parts of the United Front which disagree with each other. There are parts that might be anti-CCP and there might be parts that are pro-CCP but they are still all part of this united front, which basically refers to everything in the external projection of China is united. In other words, they don't deviate from policy. They agree with each other. They do each other's whatever work needs to be done for the motherland. They will do it because that is what the whole thing is about. And there's, you know, it's sort of a very old school, uh, obedient kind of approach to, to leadership. And it's certainly people are expected to be beholden to the motherland. Yes, exactly. So, for anybody who is who has a hard time wrapping the thoughts around, for example, there are many so-called anti-CCP organizations. How is the United Front involved? You can draw in your mind three concentric rings. Mm-hmm. Inside the smallest ring is the party leadership. That's a core. Mm-hmm. Then the middle ring is controlled opposition. Then the other ring is useful idiots. Mm-hmm. So basically, the controlled opposition behave like an opposition, but their job is to recruit and mobilize the useful idiots to carry out the party core leadership's mission. Now, this is not an old tactic. This is a tried and true tactic of all Bolsheviks. If you go back to the 1920s to study the Russian covert operation in the West, what do Bolsheviks do? They recruit many people from the so-called anti-communist white Russian. So at that time, they called the white Russian and red Russian. Red Russian is pro-communist. White Russian is anti-communist. So they go to the white Russian anti-communist immigrant community mm-hmm. to recruit people to carry out their mission. That's since 1920s. This is something they have been practicing, just like as they've said, for about a century, mm. from the teacher to the students. Right. It's so interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, I've got a question here which relates to what it is. One of the people, Marie, who's uh, in our chat group here on narrative.org forward slash TV, if people want to add your questions, that's the place to do it. Marie's asking, is Falun Gong and the CCP meshing? Falun Gong is, of course, the religion which came out of China, which has traditionally been considered a very anti-communist party entity has been, you know, those are the people you see protesting everywhere. Yet that lately, it doesn't seem like that they're that uh, that disjointed or disconnected. Have they come together? So, Sam, you have a lot of um, stuff I think you will show. It will give everybody an interesting look at it. Now, mm. here's my quick question. So, mm. everybody needs to understand the Falun Gong's history. Mm-hmm. So, Falun Gong started as a Qigong group. Qigong is basically like a Chinese form of meditation to improve their health and everything. So in 1980s, communist China started to foster and quietly support the many Qigong group mm-hmm. to grow, and among which the fastest growing is Falun Gong. So in 1980s, you will read the communist publications praise Falun Gong. So at that time, many communist officials, they also joined Falun Gong. Now, right. let's fast forward to 1999. So in several years leading to 1999, Falun Gong's rapid growth has really hurt some communist leaders. They didn't feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's becoming too big. So 
there are people, across the quote-unquote scientists, close to these communist leaders, started to criticize Falun Gong. Then Falun Gong, in an attempt to show power, flex muscle, they surrounded the Beijing Communist Party headquarters. Physically surrounded, more than 10,000. To Communist China, that's a very, very dangerous show of force. Mm -hmm. You can organize so many people up, we don't know, and you surrounded us. Oh, that's big. So they started a bloody crackdown on Falun Gong. So Falun Gong fled west. Many people fled west. So they started a, a coordinated effort to expose CCP. However, everybody needs to understand Falun Gong never truly think Communist Party is its enemy. It mm. very specifically pinpointed Communist leader in 1990s, Mr. Jiang Zemin, who is Xi Jinping's predecessor's predecessor. Yes, as the arch enemy. Yeah. So Falun Gong always hoped the new generation of CCP leaders would go back to crack down on the old factions and re restore them. So in 19, and in 2012 and 2016, Falun Gong was busy praising Xi Jinping. When Xi Jinping was building the concentration camps in eastern Turkestan, when he was burning the Christian churches by thousands, Falun Gong published the editorials praising Xi Jinping so and interesting. China towards a more liberal future. Now, this is not just one editorial. This ran on for four years. Let, so, me, just, so let me just pause you there. So what you're saying is after years of, of there being friction between the, the Chinese Communist Party and Falun Gong, at some point, the Falun Gong leadership started running editorials in their publications, I'm assuming, like uh, the Epoch Times and NTD TV, yes, praising yes. Xi, and in fact, yes. moving towards the Communist Party. Yes, because Xi succeeded Hu Jintao. Hu Jintao was the successor to Jiang Zemin. Mm. Falun Gong view, Jiang Zemin was the arch devil. Right, because he was the one who, who pressed them, I see. Yes. So Jinping was the one so who pressed them, and Xi's going to be, yeah. he's, okay, okay, got yeah. it. Yeah. Interesting. I tell you what I want to do now. I want to tell the story of Daniel Lu Jinier, who is a dissident, or at least that's what people have always thought of him, because that's what he's told people he is. He came from Tiananmen Square. He was a apparently one of the protesters on the front lines of Tiananmen Square. But, you know, flash forward, what is it, 40 years now, and he is in the fundraising committee of Donald Trump. And we're going to spend a few minutes here. I'm just going to play some tape and explain to everyone who this guy is. Everyone can decide for themselves whether he is who he says he is. Is he just a dissident who happened to find his way into the uh, inner circle of Donald Trump and as a big funder for Donald Trump? Or is there more to how he got involved with the Trump campaign? So this will take a, uh, a few minutes. And Mr. X and I will be back on the other side of this. And let us know your thoughts as it runs on the chats. Thank you for spending your time with Narrative. And stay tuned. There's much more to this conversation in our next episode. Narrative is made possible by viewers and listeners like you who join at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Join today and support truly independent journalism. Patreon.com forward slash narrative.